chapter 13. <laughs> and today I want to go over this simple question, but it's very, actually very profound, which is this. How did the first generation of Christians share their faith? How did they do it? Because I think, I don't know, um, if you've ever tried to share your faith with other people, uh, to say the least, it's pretty awkward. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm uncomfortable when I'm sharing my faith with somebody, and they feel uncomfortable when I'm sharing my faith with them. And so it's like, well, we, we have a good starting point because we both have that in common. We're both uncomfortable right now. And I've been taught, like, here are some creative ways to share your faith with other people. Like, it's like here's a little booklet you can share with other people. Or, or just scream verses at them, and maybe something will land in their hearts. I don't know. Um, like, uh, I have a friend who is really creative about how they share their faith, but I don't think any of them are effective, if you know what I mean. Like, he'll say something like, um, oh, like one story is that he was at a gym, and, you know, he was uh, in the locker room, and, you know, they played basketball, and afterwards they go back into the locker room area, and then they're all sweaty, and his friend's like, man, it is so hot. And he's like, yeah, it's hot in hell. You want to learn about Jesus? And I'm like, dude, that was not cool, man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so yeah, like, how, so the question is, in the first century, the first generation of Christians, it grew from just 12 people to thousands, if not millions. And how do they do it? Do they have booklets? Do they have creative ways of sharing their faith? Like, how, how do they do it? Like, were they up in people's faces? Like, I'm not going to let you out of this door until, you know, until you, you accept Jesus into your heart. Like, how do they do it? And, and if it worked so well back then, whatever that was, can we adopt it today? So we're gonna be talking about that. And so today we're gonna to be looking at one way that Paul shared his faith, okay? And it's a little overwhelming. So I'm gonna walk us through this one step at a time and maybe we could you know, grasp some, some good application from this. So let me just give you an update as to what's been happening so far. So the whole story takes place in over here on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. A guy named Paul and Barnabas, they travel from here all the way to this island over here called Cyprus. And while they're here, this is last week, they shared their faith with, with this proconsul, a very important person, and they seem to be really, he accepted it really well. But here's the problem. We don't know what he said. It just said Paul spoke to him, and then he was like, okay. You know, so we don't know exactly what he said there. But today, we're going to go to the next destination, which is over here. So he goes, gets on a boat again, and he goes to the mainland in the middle of Turkey, right here to a place called Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch, and if you want to know where exactly this is, like this is, like this is modern Turkey. Greece is over here. We'll talk a little about that, a little bit about that today. All right. So this is the context we're in right now, and this is how Paul. I mean, he walks into a synagogue. He does that all the time. Whenever he goes somewhere, he goes to talk to his fellow Jewish friends first. So he goes to synagogue on Saturday, and he begins his speech. And this is one of the only sermons that are recorded by Paul, so we could you know, dissect it and everything, okay? Now, before I start reading his sermon, because some of you, and it's okay to say this, some of you might think his sermon is boring. And some of you might think, like, I have no idea what he just said. And that's okay. And as a matter of fact, today, we're not gonna be looking too much at his content, but more of his delivery. So if you don't understand what he's saying here, that's totally fine, okay? And if you want to know what he's saying, uh, I'll drop a few hints here and there. All right, so let's read what he spoke at the church or at the synagogue to the fellow Jews. This is what he says. Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. So he says, hey guys, I know in the synagogue there's a bunch of Jews, but there are also some Gentiles who are interested in converting to Judaism. So he's like, hey, listen to me. 
The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Now, I know most of you can't see this, but over here there's a red asterisk on the word Egypt right there. I placed that there. That might not be in your Bible. I placed that there because I want to denote the fact that Paul right here is making a reference to one of the stories in the Old Testament. Specifically, he just summarized the second half of the book of Genesis in one paragraph. Okay? And you'll see why that's important in a second. Next verse. He says, With mighty power he led them out of that country. Another asterisk. He's making reference to Exodus chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. For about 40 years he endured their con uh, conduct in the wilderness. Right here he's making a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 31. You don't need to know this. I'm not going to test you on it. Don't worry. If you're feeling overwhelmed already, that's the point. Okay, let's go to the next verse. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Giving their land to their people. I have to write my notes here. Joshua chapter 19. As their inheritance. That's a reference to Psalm chapter 7 verse... Uh, Psalm chapter 78. All this took about 450 years. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's quoting a bunch of the Old Testament. Let's keep going. After this, God gave them judges, which obviously is from the book of Judges, specifically chapter 2, verse 16, until the time of Samuel, the prophet. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Then people asked for a king. That's chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish. That's chapter 10, verse 1, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's chapter 9, verse 1 of 1 Samuel, in case you're wondering, who ruled 40 years. Yeah, okay, let's keep going. <laughs> if, you're, if you're like, I have no idea, that's the point. Okay, after removing Saul, that's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, he made David their king, that's chapter 16 of that same book. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, that's chapter 13, verse 14. He will do everything I want him to do, that's Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. You're like, I'm so glad I came to church today. All right, next verse. <laughs> From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. And this promise he's referring to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 22, verse 51, and Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. Yeah. <laughs> Next verse. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. No reference there. Next verse. <laughs> We tell you the good news. Now, he's now quoting John the Baptist, who was quoting Isaiah chapter 40. So he's doing a double reference. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, let's go on, because he quotes another one right here. As it is written in the second psalm, so he actually gives you a reference now. Second psalm. And he's specifically talking about Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Are you ready for more? Okay, here we go. <laughs> God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, quote, another verse, he's quoting right here, Isaiah chapter 55. I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So, there's a lot going on here. And if you think he's done with this sermon, he's not. Here's another part of the, the sermon. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay, which is a reference to Psalm 16, verse 10. Now, if you're one of the few people, and I mean like maybe a couple people who are interested in what Paul is actually saying here, because you're totally lost now, right? Let me just kind of summarize for you what's happening here. 
For the first few verses of his sermon, he basically recaps Jewish history. Okay? And then after that, he stops on King David, because King David was their favorite king. Everybody's like favorite king, you know, from centuries ago was King David, right? And he's like, here are some prophecies and verses about King David, just in case. And he comes across this one verse about King David that says, oh, and this king will never see decay. And then Paul goes on to say, but wait a minute, don't we all know that David died? We know where his tomb is, and we know his body's decayed. I mean, it's just bones now. So according to this verse, it says that he's not going to see decay. So this verse must not be about David. It must be about a descendant of David, and that's Jesus. He's the one that came back from the dead. He resurrected three days later. He never experienced decay. And so people are like, whoa, this is just great. Wow. Right? And then Paul's like, okay, let me just conclude this whole thing with one more reference to the Bible, which is here. This is from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. I know most of you haven't, didn't even know Habakkuk was a book in the Bible, but it's okay. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. He's talking about the resurrection. If somebody said somebody came back from the dead, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't believe you. It's like, yeah, that was prophesied. Your reaction is also prophesied. Paul would say to the synagogue that he's, he's at. Okay, so a few things. First, this is overwhelming. Number two, if I lost you like 10 verses ago, that's okay. Okay, and, and if you're wondering how many verses did Paul quote in his sermon, I counted 23. I might have missed a few. There might have been more, but at least 23. Okay, so he goes back to the Old Testament over and over and over again, and to these guys who are listening to him, they're like, like their minds are being blown. They're like amazed. Like this is Paul, like if, if this was a rap battle, this is Paul's moment to drop his mic and walk away and everyone's be like, you know, I don't know. They'll be like, oh snap, like look what he just did. That, that's what's happening here. Okay, so, and we know that this was the reaction people got, that, that Paul got because of the very next verse. It says this, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Like, I can't wait until next Saturday. They had church on Saturday in the Jewish synagogue, right? I mean, most of you are like, if he's coming back to speak next week, I'm not coming to church because I just don't understand what he's saying. But these guys were eating it up. They're like, I want more of that. Can you, can you, we have to wait a whole week to hear you speak. Oh, can we take you out to coffee and talk to you right now? I mean, that's the reaction people had. Next verse. It says this. It says, when this congregation was dismissed from, you know, the synagogue, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. They're like, we can't wait until next week. We need to hear more about this now. Like, whatever Paul did, we might not understand it, but those guys back then were like, whoa, I want more of that. Like, they were excited about this stuff. Now, when I was reading this sermon, I was like, wait, wait a minute, Paul, like, how, how did you get such a captive audience? Like, I, I don't get it. Like, you, all you did was, was recap their history and, and just spit out a bunch of Bible verses from the Old Testament. Why, why did that work? So maybe the question that I need to be asking is this. Why does Paul and Barnabas recap their history? Like, they already know their own history. Like, I, it might be even offensive for Paul to say, let me tell you about the founding of your nation. Like, Paul, we already know. Like, why does he do that? Well, like I said, today, I don't want to focus so much on the content of this sermon, but more of the method that Paul you, you, utilized here. 
you have to remember that these people called the Jews, they rejected Jesus, not all of them, but in general, because, you know, 12 disciples were Jew, right? They said, you know, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, because, and why? Well, because when we read our Bible, the Old Testament, we don't see Jesus in it. So why did Paul recap the Old Testament? Why did he recap the history of, of, of their nation? Well, there is an assumption that Paul is making here that most Christians don't make when they share their faith. And I want to share that assumption with you. And this assumption that Paul's making, you'll see it, once you know what this assumption is, you'll see it throughout all his ministries. Every time he preaches, you'll see this happening every single time. But I think that most people today, most Christians today, they don't know how to do this. Okay, and so this might be new to you. Maybe it's not to you, but maybe if it is, it might come off a little offensive. Okay, so let me, let me start out with this. This assumption that Paul made is this, that a Christian's role is not to bring Jesus to people. A Christian's role is not to say, hey, there's a country over there that doesn't know Jesus. Let me take Jesus in my pocket and go over here and drop him off and say, guys, let me tell you about this guy. That's not the assumption that Paul operated off, off of. His assumption was this, that a Christian's role is to assume that Jesus is already there. All he's doing is, let me tell you about your history and point out that Jesus was there, 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 there. You've been living with Jesus your entire life and you didn't even know it. All I am here to do is point out the fact that in your history, in your prophets, and everything that you've been learning through the scriptures, it was actually pointing to Jesus this whole time. This is why Paul goes through the history of Israel with them, to show them if you were to go through this history, you'll note that Jesus was already there. He was already working. And this would be huge because let's just say you go to your atheist friend and you're like, hey, I want to introduce you to Jesus. It's like, no, no, Paul would be, no, that's not how I work at this. I want to learn more about your story because in your story, you might find evidence that Jesus was already there. And this is the assumption that Paul carried with him wherever he went. He never thought he was better than other people. He didn't think, oh, you poor civilization that doesn't know Jesus. Let me go and conquer your, your, your little tribe, and then I'm going to teach you about Jesus. Like, no, 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 he doesn't do that. He respects their culture. And he says, in your culture, you might not know this, but my God is the God of everything. And so it should make sense that God was already working in your tribe, in your nation, in your civilization, right? So the reason why Paul recaps history here is that he recaps their history to point out that Jesus was already at work in their non-Jesus history. And this is so important. This is so important. And here's the deal. It worked. It worked so well. I mean, look at the next verse in Acts. This is this. On the next Sabbath, so people who had to wait a week, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, people are like, we want more of this. And the people who wanted more of this invited their friends, like, you gotta listen to this guy, Paul. He spits verses like no other. And he helped us see that, you know, our biggest hero, King David, was actually pointing to Jesus. Like, no, really? Yeah, yeah, like, come on, you gotta go listen to this guy. Like, this is huge. This is the assumption that Paul always worked off of. And, you know, I'm gonna skip a few verses now, but, um, so after all these people gathered, the Jews who ran the synagogue, they're watching all these people come. And we don't know if the whole city actually came or almost, it says almost all the city came. But even if this is an exaggeration, we know there's a lot of people, right? So the Jews are watching this and they're getting like, oh man, I'm starting to feel jealous. Like, 
Luke, who records this for us, tells us that people actually got jealous that Paul had such a big gathering of people. And so they started contradicting Paul's teachings. It says that they started abusing Paul and Barnabas, right? And so after seeing all this happen, Paul's like, okay, I thought you would accept this message better, but you're not. So this is what Paul does. He says, he, this is what he says to them. We had to speak the word of God to you first. He's talking to the Jews. He's saying, guys, we met you where you were. We used the word of God to teach you. We use your word of God to teach you about Jesus. So I don't know why you're so offended by it. Since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Like we met you where you were. I'm a Jew also, and I hear I'm telling you about Jesus. I spoke all these truths to you on your terms. But because your jealousy is getting in the way, I'm going to take this message and go somewhere else. And typical Jewish form, this is what he does. So they shook the dust off their feet. Just kicked the dust off your sandals as a warning to them and went to Iconium. Shaking the dust off your feet is basically their way of saying, all right, if you don't want us here, then we're going to take everything that we brought here with us and everything that's about of, of your town, your city, I'm just going to shake it off myself and move on. Basically saying we're going to cut ties right here because it doesn't seem like you really want us. Now, this is one sermon that we have of Paul. And like I said earlier, we see evidence of this happening in other places where Paul meets people where they are. And a perfect example of this, we're going to cheat a little bit. We're going to skip a few chapters in the book of Acts. We're going to go to chapter 17 of Acts. And this story doesn't take place in the same place that we're in right now. Let's take a look at the map. Okay, because right now we're in Pisidian Antioch, which is right here. We're going to move westward to a place that many of us are probably familiar with, which is a place called Athens, which is in the heart of Greece. This is where a lot of the philosophers, the Greek philosophers that, were, that they're known for, this is where they live, okay? So Paul is walking through Athens, and he sees a council, like a group of people, who are just spitting out like, oh, I believe in this. Here's my philosophy. Here's my philosophy. This is what I learned. You know, like, so they're all sharing, and Paul's like, this is my chance to share what I believe. So Paul is now in Athens, a very different context than he was before. And lucky for us, Luke records for us that sermon. Okay, so let's take a look at that. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Religious was not a bad thing. That was like an endearing term for people there. So he used that to say, hey, you know, good to see you. I noticed that you guys are very smart. That's what he's saying here. Next verse. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, if you guys know anything about Greece, you know that they're like, Centuries ago, they had these statues of Zeus and Athenike and you know, Poseidon and you know, like all these gods, right? And they had a god to, for, to represent every aspect of their lives. But they had this fear, which is, what if we're worshiping all these gods and goddesses and we forgot one? Like, you can see the council of the divine who are like, oh, you know, look at the Athenians. They're doing great, except they always forget about Norm. Like, Norm is like, oh, I'm so angry. They always forget it. We're, you know, and so to avoid, you know, the wrath of Norm or whatever name, fill in the blank, they always had a statue that said to an unknown god. As long as they worshiped that, they thought they were appeasing the gods, right? So this, that, that's the context here. So Paul's like, hey, I noticed that you have a statue there without a name, with a big question mark on it. Well, let me tell you something about that. Next verse. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Like, 
for a long time, this unknown God, he doesn't have a name, right? So um, you've been ignorant about who you're worshiping here. Let me tell you a story about that statue right there. Let me tell you a story about that God that you don't know. Okay, so this is his sermon. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Like the God that you don't know about is the God that is bigger than all other gods. He created everything. Okay, next verse. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Like you've been forgetting to worship him this whole time, but it's okay. He doesn't need anything from you. That's what he's saying. So you have nothing, no reason to worry. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breathes and everything else. Like the hands that built all the other statues around here, he's the one that gave you the ability to do that. And then he says, from one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole world. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did, next verse, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. He's like, this God is so huge, but he's also intimate enough for each person to reach out to him and connect with him. So people are leaning in, like, what's going on here? What is he talking about? And so at this point, Paul's like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna quote two passages. Okay, let's see what he quotes here. For in him, we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now. At this point, you're thinking, did Paul just quote a passage from the Old Testament? He's really good at that. Which verse did you quote? Cost, just tell us. What, what chapter and verse is this from? Because, you know, for him, what does it say? For in him we live and move and have our being. That sounds like a psalm, or that sounds like something from Isaiah, or I don't know. It turns out that's not a Bible verse. That's a quote from this guy. His name is Epimenides. Kind of spooky, but, you know, right? This is his story. Epimenides is known as the guy, as a prophet in Greek culture. He stumbled upon a cave of Zeus, a very sacred cave. He went to sleep, slept for 57 years. When he woke up, he had the ability to prophesy. Paul is quoting Rumpelstiltskin, right? He's like, your own prophet said this. And then the second quote is a quote from this other, as a Greek poet, his name is Aratus. He's like, let me tell you about what I'm trying to teach you using your own scriptures. And then the next line he says is, therefore, therefore meaning, assuming that your prophets are correct, assuming that your poet is correct, upon that foundation, here's the conclusion that I'm gonna give. He says this, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's like, your own prophet said that we are the children of God. But for some reason, you are the ones that are creating your own gods. We didn't create gods. God created us. Like, he's like, your own prophet said that. And then he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. There's no reason that you should know this stuff. Because all this stuff was happening in Israel. So there's, like, it's okay. You were guessing, you know, you were trying to look at the evidence around you, and you came up with Zeus, and you came up with all these other gods and goddesses. Okay, I get it, right? So it was totally okay that you missed it. You were somewhere near the mark, but you were off, you know? Uh, at least you had this unknown God, and, you know, it's a good thing you had that, because that's what God is really like, right? He's like, he overlooked such things like that in the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. But now Jesus showed up. And now we have no excuse to say we don't know who God is 
because he showed up in the flesh here amongst us. Then he continues, he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he was, that he has appointed. He has given proof of, the, uh, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And he talks about the resurrection. Do you want proof that this guy is actually who he says he is? He, he came back from the grave. So what is Paul doing here? Is he trying to find some creative illustration that would help him get his foot in the door? Is he using some booklet to say, here are some four spiritual laws for you to memorize? What is he doing here? What he's doing here is this. Paul simply pointed out that Jesus is already at work in their non-Jesus history. Some of your own prophets figured it out, Paul would say. Some of your poets figured it out. God obviously has been in work in this community in Athens. How did this work? Did it go well? As it turns out, it really worked out. Look at the next verse. We want to hear you again on this subject. Like the people are like, we want to hear more about this, Paul. Like we, we want to learn more. Like what you're saying makes sense to us. If Paul were to quote a bunch of verses from the Old Testament, they would have been like, we have no clue what you're talking about. So what does Paul do? He uses their own scripture to meet them where they are. By the way, I don't know if you guys noticed, in this whole sermon, how many times does he mention the name Jesus? Zero. He doesn't even bring up his name. But he brings up, he talks about the unknown God. He says, we want to hear from you again, they say to him, we want to hear more from you, right? At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. It worked incredibly well, right? Because he made the assumption that God was already work in their history. And, but how do we do that today? Well, this is one thing we can learn from Paul. You see, Paul loved these people so much, right, that, that he took the time to research their culture. He didn't just walk into a culture and say, here's a Bible, read it. You need to learn what I know. No, no, he says, I love you so much that the first step that I'm gonna take is to learn more about you. I'm gonna learn more about your culture because I love you. I remember when I first started serving in the church, I served in a capacity of youth ministry and I would show up to like Sunday school, right? And I realized quoting verses at them really doesn't do much. I don't know if things have changed. This is like 20 years ago or so, right? And so I took the time to find out what music you listen to, you know, and of course there's like a wide variety right there right? Who are your heroes? I had to go in and find out, like, how do you communicate? Do you use email? Oh, no, no. Back then, they used AIM. They, they would chat. And, and you know what I also discovered is that they have some really creative names. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I don't want to go through that because there's some really strange names out there. Anyways, um, but here, I want to give you an example of what I learned in school, okay, in, in seminary, when I was studying to be a pastor. One of the activities that my professor told us in class is, hey, guys, Next time we meet for class, don't meet in this classroom. I want to meet you guys in Pasadena. And we're like, okay, so that was quite a drive from where my school was. So next week when we had class, we all met in Pasadena. The professor met us there. He ushered us into this small room, and then there was this man, and he introduced himself. He's like, hi, I work for the city of Pasadena. And then he went on to tell the history. He said, like, you know, Pasadena started from a hotel. 
I don't know if you guys know this, you know, but he says that, you know, there was, there was a gold rush that was happening, and we don't know if people got rich off of that or not, but what we do know is that a bunch of people were coming over trying to get rich, and so we decided, you know, the city of Pasadena, they're like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, let's create a hotel next to the lake, and we'll make money that way. And so that's how Pasadena started. And then he said, like, and it started growing, and then, you know, all, and, and Pasadena always felt like they were different from everybody else. Um, they, he also told us in this history of Pasadena, for a long time, they withheld from opening any chain restaurants like McDonald's. They all wanted to make sure that the, the mom and pop stores were the ones that were, like, really, you know, like, on, in the spotlight. So if you go there now, you realize there aren't that many McDonald's and in and outs. It's because of that, right? And he also said that, um, um, there's, there's, uh, like, uh, if you look at the school system there, for a long time it was all public schools, but when they started integrating the races together, the people, the, 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 the upper richer people who were atten attending the public schools at the time, pulled their kids out and they started their own private schools so the segregation will continue. Like, like he would teach us all these things and we're like, we didn't know that about this city. And then a professor would pull us out of the room and he'll say this, he'll say, so what do you think God has been doing in this city all along? And if you were to start a ministry here in Pasadena, what would be the next thing you would do? Like, what do you think God has been doing throughout the history of Pasadena and how would you contribute to that? And then after that, he said, now let's drive over to the park. So we all drove over to the park and he said, now pair up in twos, I want you to walk around the neighborhood not knock on doors and talk about Jesus, no, no but, but just walk around and pay attention. What kind of cars are parked in front of the houses? When do you start smelling food? Because that's around the time they're starting to cook. Pay attention. This is called exegeting the community. And as you discover, oh, okay, so there aren't that, like, the kind of cars they have are like middle-class cars. Oh, look, cars are coming home, so most people come back from work around 5 p.m. Oh, look, they're cooking, and it seems like most of them are protein-based, you know. Not to be creepers, like like it's kind of creepy to know that people are like doing that, right? But come on, Google's already doing this, Amazon's already doing it, Facebook's doing it way more, right? So we're just doing that too. But um, he's like, pay attention. If you love the city, you need to know these things about your community. And remember, I remember when I after took that class, and I thought, you know, we have a church here in West LA, and so I started digging into this city. And I, I don't want to go too far into that, but, you know, I learned that there used to be an internment camp not too far from here. And when that happened and war was coming, was, was coming to an end, some missionaries came and pulled the Japanese community out and started teaching them the trade of how to be gardeners. And, you know, that's how it started. That's why in Sawtell area, there's like a big guard, like a, um, what do you call those? What? Nurseries, yes. I'm sorry, I wasn't thinking clear. Yeah, nurseries, and that's why there's a like a street that's dedicated to like Japanese food restaurants and stuff like that. And so, like, I had to start asking, what is God doing in our community, and how can I contribute to it? You see, when you love a community like Paul loved Athens, you would do the research. And if it's not a location, if it's a group of people, if it's college students, you will do the research and finding out what are the needs of college students mostly money and food, but still, we you know, like a little, little, little more deeper than that, right? So this is what it means to be a person who loves a community. This is what Paul did. I'm going to do research until I see what God has been doing here. His assumption, God has already been here, even before I got here. So when Paul was in a Jewish synagogue, he used Jewish texts. When he was talking about, to, to, he was talking to Greek philosophers, he used Greek mythology and poets. And we're like, man, Paul, 
you are such a genius. And Paul will say, oh, no, I didn't come up with this concept. This is not original to me. This is what God's been doing all along. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Well, have you ever read the Old Testament? Have you read the book of Genesis? The imagery that's used in the book of Genesis, God is meeting them where they are, right? Because the people who read the text back then were people who understood Mesopotamian mythology. So God borrowed that imagery and spoke truth to them using those imageries. In the book of Exodus, there's a group of people who are trapped in Egypt. Moses comes in and pulls them out. And every instruction that God gives the Israelites and Moses are all imageries that came from Egypt because God met them there. Do you guys remember Acts chapter 2 months ago? When all of a sudden they got, received the Holy Spirit and now they're able to speak in tongues in different languages? Notice what happened there. God gave people the ability to meet people where they are. You speak this language? Well, God gave me the ability to speak that language. Let me meet you where you are. Not, you guys need to learn our language so you can come to, you know, learn about God on our terms. That wasn't the case back then. This has been God's thing all along. God divine came down as a human being so that he could meet us where we are. The greatest act of love. In other words, God meets us where we are and because we're called to love people in the way that God has loved us, this is also true, that we need to meet people where they are. We have to assume that God is already there. And in order for us to do that, we have to learn more about them. It is foolish of us to think, we're gonna invite somebody to church and we're gonna wait for them to catch on to our program. The way that Paul approached this is, I'm gonna to go to them and find out about their program and see where God's been working through that. Because we know that God loves us and God has called us to love them. Amen? All right, let's pray.